Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set over the whole the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground of complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful. No error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God and as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes a petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. As he labored till the sun went down to rescue him, then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Now, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, 
O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. The word of the Lord. Thank you. Good morning. Welcome. So glad you're here. Let me pray for us and then we'll dive into this story. Thank you, Jesus, for... Um, your faithfulness and your goodness and your mercy to us. Thank you for this great story, one of the uh, favorite Bible stories for so many of us who have grown up around the Scripture. And so, Jesus, we ask this morning that you would um, remind us of what is true of each and every one of us here this morning, that we are all made in your image and have honor and dignity and value, that we're all loved by you, and yet we're also all marred and broken because of our own sin and rebellion. And yet, Jesus, you have come to be friends of sinners. You came to call sinners to repentance and not the righteous. And so, Jesus, help us to hear your voice this morning. Help us to hear your call speaking to us through this story. We pray, God, that no matter what we've experienced this week, no matter the voices in our heads, no matter the struggles that we're internalizing, no matter the fears or the anxieties that plague us, no matter what's happened in our lives in the past days, that we would be able by your Spirit's ministry to listen to you and know that we are loved and delighted in by you, that you have been faithful to us and your faithfulness will not ever stop or wane. And so, Jesus, thank you. Speak to us this morning, we pray, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, in May of 1940, Nazi Germany invaded and very quickly conquered France and occupied Paris. If you're familiar with the history of World War II, you'll know that uh, the speed with which the Nazis won was, of course, a shock to much of the world and really kind of the final wake-up call to just how significant a threat the Nazis were. Uh, it was also the final straw for many German believers in Germany, the confessing church, when they watched what happened in the middle of 1940 and the fall of France, came to realize that if they were to be faithful to the kingdom of God, they would have to oppose the Nazi party. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one such German believer. When France fell, Bonhoeffer was actually living in New York City. 
He had escaped to America to avoid being conscripted into the German army and, and to continue to write and study as a theologian and as a teacher. But when he heard the news of Germany invading and conquering France, Bonhoeffer realized uh, that he had made a mistake in leaving his homeland and that he must return, actually, if he was to be faithful. Uh, he was being called by God to serve faithfully in enemy territory in so many ways and not while he was safely tucked away in America. So Bonhoeffer returned in the fall of 1940 to Germany and the remainder of his story is quite famous, you might know of it. He ended up being imprisoned and executed as a traitor and as a spy against the German state. While he sat in his cell, um, cell 92 at Tegel Prison in Germany, Bonhoeffer wrote the following. Read this with me. You read quietly. I'll read out loud. Who stands fast? Only the man whose final standard is not his reason, his principles, his conscience, his freedom, or his virtue, but who is ready to sacrifice all this when he is called to obedient and responsible action in faith and in exclusive allegiance to God. The responsible man who tries to make his whole life an answer to the question and call of God. Who tries to make his whole life an answer to the question and call of God. That's what Bonhoeffer did. It's also what Daniel, some 2,000 years earlier, did. That was Daniel's story, as we've seen, making his whole life an answer to the question and call of God. And, and here's what you need to hear this morning, friends. All disciples of Jesus Christ are called to the same. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're called to the same. That's been a theme of Daniel, hasn't it? Uh, because God is in control, uh, even when it doesn't seem like God's in control, Daniel tells us we can confidently serve God faithfully, uh, even when we face opposition. That's one of the great stories of Daniel's life and of this book, and it's one of the things God, I think, wants to tell us this morning. So Daniel, we find him here late in his life. He's probably around 80 years old, and he's now serving under the third foreign pagan king of his lifetime. He showed faithfulness uh, under Belshazzar. We saw it, um, excuse me, under Nebuchadnezzar in chapters 1 through 4. He showed faithfulness as a civil servant under Belshazzar in chapter 5, and now he shows faithfulness and aptitude under Darius, the Persian king who has, at the end of chapter 5, conquered Babylon. And today, in really the highlight of Daniel's lives, one of the most famous stories in the Bible, you kids, this might be one of your most favorite stories, if your parents have read this to you, we see Daniel faithfully serving God, faithfully serving God's kingdom under King Darius, even when he's thrown into a den of lions. And so the Spirit speaks to us through this story today, and through Daniel's life, calls us to faithfulness, like Daniel, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, our, our chief allegiance as Christians is to God's kingdom. We're first citizens of heaven. That means that we will face opposition in this world from the kingdom of darkness. Jesus himself said that any who follow him will face trouble in this world. And so one of the questions to ask ourselves is, can we be faithful? Can we contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude says? The good news is that if you're connected to Jesus in Christ, you have the ministry of the Holy Spirit and indeed can be faithful. We can follow the pattern of Daniel. We can live a life committed to Jesus. And the only reason we know we can do that is because God 
foundationally and primarily, is always faithful to us, just like he was faithful to Daniel. So I want to look at this chapter about faithfulness, Daniel's faithfulness in God's in three parts as we move through it. First, Daniel's faithfulness to his place. Second, Daniel's faithfulness to God. Third, God's faithfulness to Daniel. Okay, so first, Daniel's faithfulness to his place. You know, we've been six chapters in Daniel now, and and a large chunk of Daniel, the first half, is devoted to telling us as readers that Daniel is really good at what he does. He's a good worker. He's a good politician. He's, He's a good administrator. He's a good leader. He's a good prophet and sage. Jeremiah, another Old Testament prophet, told the people of Israel, God told them actually through Jeremiah, that when you go into exile, you should work for the good of the city in which you have been exiled. Because when the city, Babylon, flourishes, you too will flourish. Daniel is the prototype of that verse. Daniel was an essential part of the Babylonian administration, as we've seen throughout his life. And now there's a new sheriff in town, right? The Persians. And Daniel continues to flourish under Persia. In fact, we read in verse 2, he's made one of three presidents, that's like a prime minister basically, over the whole vast kingdom of Persia by Darius the Mede. And and even in this very lofty role, verse 3, Daniel continues to distinguish himself, so much so that Darius, when he's faced with the very real possibility of living life without Daniel, can't eat or sleep. So Daniel was supremely gifted. And and more importantly, Daniel put his gifts to good use, working for the common good. Daniel's life was not solely dedicated to working for other Jewish exiles. No, he works for the common good of the city in which he has been exiled. This reminds me of one of Jesus' stories. He tells a parable in Matthew 25. It's called the parable of the talents. He tells a story about a a wealthy man who gives one talent, a piece of money to someone, and five to another man, and 10 to another man, and then goes away for a long time and says, go to work, invest this money, make this money useful to me. And the man with 10 talents earns a lot more money. The man with five talents, right, earns a lot more money, but what does the man with one talent do? He basically tucks it under his pillow and puts it in a basically earning 0.0 interest um, money market account, gets no money off of it, and when the owner comes back, He blesses and gives even more to those who used what they had been given for the good of the owner. And he condemns the man who sat pat on what he had been given. The point that Daniel teaches us is that every single one of you has been given gifts. Every single one of you have been given talents, so to speak. And one of the calls of faithfulness is to use them to the best of our ability for the common good. That's what we see in Daniel throughout Daniel's life as an exile, he's deeply immersed in public life. He was educated at Babylon University, remember? He's invested his life into Babylon and now into Persia. And without question, Daniel cared about the success of these nations and cities that he served and that he worked for. And so by the time he's an old man who spent decades as a public servant, I I think it's fair to say Daniel would have been called a patriot in our day, if I could take modern American jargon and impose it on the text for the sake of an illustration. He was a patriot, even though he was an exile, really a forced immigrant. And here's the point. We should see Daniel's life as a pattern 
as a pattern for the way we are to live our lives in the world. Because just like Daniel, we too, if we're Christians, are exiles. First Peter 2 says we're sojourners, right? We're exiles on our way to our heavenly home. And so the question is, how should we live? How should we live as Christians who are waiting on Jesus to return and make all things new so that we can be home, but who aren't home yet? There's many answers to that question in the Christian world. One side says that Christians should isolate that we should basically do what we did during snowpocalypse, right? Honker down, wait for it to end. And then there's the other side which says, no, we shouldn't isolate, we should acclimate. We should immerse ourselves in our culture and in our society to the degree that we're basically indistinguishable. But Daniel's example, and the example of scripture, is that Christians should engage and yet retain their distinctiveness engage and yet retain distinctiveness. So very practically, what does it look like for us as 21st century Americans to be faithful to our place as Daniel was? Love for our place is one of our seven core values at Christ Church. What do we mean by that? What we mean and what I think Daniel teaches is that we should care about and serve our culture and our city. Even if we're surrounded by non-Christians, yeah, Even if our government officials are all pagans, yeah, that's what Daniel does. Christians are to be the best citizens, to work for the common good, to be the best employers or employees. So practically, if God has called you vocationally as a teacher or as a lawyer or as a nurse or as a bus driver or as a widget maker, you should do your work, whatever it is, as best as you can. That's one of the ways you practice faithfulness to your place. And we should care about our neighborhoods and our communities and and our city. We should work to subvert what is wrong and what is evil in our city, and we should celebrate and enjoy what is good and beautiful in our city. Jane Jacobs was an author who wrote a good bit on cities, uh, specifically New York City, and she, she writes this at one point. Listen to what she says. Ultimately, healthy communities will only be realized when individuals commit to a particular place and to particular neighbors in the long-term work of making a place, of recognizing and enjoying the responsibilities and pleasures of membership in a local community. So what does that mean? It means you can do things like join your school board, you can go to HOA meetings, you can attend festivals and enjoy fiesta in San Antonio, you can volunteer at good local organizations, you can engage in local politics and know what the issues are. That's following the pattern that Daniel sets out for us. That's a way we can, as followers of Jesus, be faithful, faithful to our place and serve as what Jesus calls us to be, the salt of the earth, right? That does not lose its saltiness. So Daniel's faithful. He's faithful to his place. Secondly, Daniel's faithful to God. Newsflash, you ready? Faithfulness does not necessarily lead to everything going hunky-dory. Faithfulness does not necessarily lead to comfort. In fact, Scripture tells us that it usually leads to the opposite of that. That's what happened to Daniel. Uh, These other high government officials, the, the presidents and the satraps, they're spurred probably by jealousy at Daniel's kind of meteoric rise through the government ranks. They're also probably partly spurred by racism. Notice, if you look, throughout the story of Daniel, he's always referred to as a Jew, 
this outsider, this person who's not like us. So they are jealous of Daniel, and they devise a plan to get rid of Daniel, and, and so they do what politicians have done from time immemorial. They look for dirt. They look for dirt on Daniel, verse 4, but they can't find anything, no ground for complaint, no faults. Daniel's squeaky clean. There's no skeletons in his closet. There's no, to use modern parlance, tweets that he's going to later regret when he runs for public office, right? There's nothing they can find on Daniel that he's covered up. Daniel's a man of integrity. But these Persian leaders, they don't stop there. They decide the way we're going to get rid of him is via his religion. So they come up with this crazy law. The laws of them. How did the Persians conquer the world when they had this many terrible laws? You read Esther, you read Daniel. A lot of bad policy, but they somehow managed to conquer the world. This is one of the bad laws. Religious freedom, not a thing. Not a thing in ancient Persia. So they come up with this law. They say, hey, listen, we're going to have a month where everyone who prays to any god they need to pray through Darius. Now think about this. This is actually, in some ways, ingenious politically. Darius is the new king in town, and he's got this vast empire with all these different um, cultures and ethnicities. And so they want to be unifiers. And so they say, listen, we're not deifying Darius. We're not making him a god. But what we're saying is that whatever god you pray to, you Persian people, you need to make sure that that prayer is mediated through the king. So, you know, we have Black History Month. We have Irish American Heritage Month. I wonder if you knew that. Let's celebrate that. They have Pray to Darius Only Month, right? This is Pray to Darius Only Month, and they know that, A, this is probably a good thing for Darius, but more importantly, this is the way we're going to get Daniel. And, and it's interesting that they clearly deceive Darius. If you look in verse 7, we read, all the presidents of the kingdom agree, is what they said. Well, there's no way Daniel's going to agree with this. Daniel probably wasn't in those meetings. Darius is also to blame for his naivete and for his pride. You'd think he would ask, hey, where's Daniel? What does Daniel think? But he's so excited that everyone's going to be praying to him and through him that he just goes along with it. And so they pass this law, outlawing all prayer, okay? You guys with me? Knowing they finally got Daniel right where they want him. And then we get to verse 10. This is my favorite verse in the whole story. Look with me. When Daniel knew the document had been signed, what does he do? He goes to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks to his God as he had done previously. What is the one thing? What is the one thing at the center of Daniel's life? What, what is most important to Daniel? He, he is faithful in the worship of God and in communing with God. And that is what governs his days, no matter what's happening to him circumstantially. He knows God. Daniel lives in the light of God's presence, and that changes his life. It changes the way he responds, especially to hard stuff. How does it change it? Well, when he finds out, I'm about to get thrown into the lion's den, he just keeps on doing what he's always done, which is faithfully going to God in prayer. And think about what he doesn't do we probably would have done some of these things. Remember how much power Daniel has. But what does he not do? He doesn't, you know, use his influence or power to approach Darius and talk him out of this bad policy. Doesn't do that. Nor does he petition the community or start a protest on social media against this law. Nor, interestingly enough, does he go pray in his closet, making sure no one will see him 
so that no one will know what he's doing. What he does is he goes back home, he opens up all the windows, and he prays. The first thing he does when there's trouble, the first thing he does when there's trouble is pray. What is the first thing you do when there's trouble? Check your bank account? Call your mother-in-law? Probably not. I doubt that's the first thing you do. Uh, Or pray. That's what Daniel does. And and you get the sense that Daniel isn't a guy that prays only when he's in trouble. This isn't like a foxhole prayer, right? The text is very clear. He just keeps up what has surely been his regular rhythm for the majority of his life. He prays three times a day. Notice the the text tells us, verse 10, as he had done previously. And later, Darius asked Daniel, Daniel, has your God, listen, whom you serve continually, has he been able to deliver you? What is Daniel's life marked by? So that even Darius knows, even these guys who are conspiring against him know, if there's one thing we can be sure of, other than the sun rising and setting in the east and in the west, is that Daniel is going to be in his place praying at this time. His life is, is marked by habits of faithfulness. Habits of faithfulness. What is your life marked by? We've looked at that this year already, have we not? Your life is marked by habits. They might not be faithful habits, but your life is marked by habits. Your heart and my heart, all of our hearts, they have certain grooves etched into them, certain patterns built into them. And when we come to a time of crisis, what we do is we fall into the grooves. We fall into the patterns that we have built. This reminds me of the Karate Kid. Remember the Karate Kid? Everybody please nod yes. I'm not talking about the new one. Repent of your sin if you've watched that one and go watch the old Karate Kid, okay? Daniel Russo, this nobody from Jersey, moves to Southern California. He wants the girl, Elizabeth Shue, but he makes some enemies pretty quick, Johnny Lawrence and Cobra Kai, and so he wants to learn karate so these guys will stop beating him up. And what do you know? There happens to be an old, retired Japanese dude who's like the, the, um, the, the man that fixes things in his apartment complex that just also happens to be an expert in karate, lives next door, and he begins to teach Daniel karate. But remember, the way he teaches him. Wax on, wax off, paint the fence, So he spends weekends and so much time doing all this manual labor for Mr. Miyagi. And eventually Daniel gets frustrated and he says, I'm so sick of this. I want to learn how to beat up the bad guys. I keep getting my butt kicked every Friday night. When am I going to learn karate? And Mr. Miyagi, out of frustration, great scene. Isn't this a great scene? Starts going after Daniel, finally punching him. And he says, wax on, dodges the punch. Of course, when I was a kid and watched this movie the first time, my brothers and I, we tried this. It didn't go as well. As in the movie, I was the oldest, so I actually came out ahead, but it didn't go so well for my younger brothers. The wax on thing didn't work for Robert, but it worked for Daniel. He waxed on, he waxed off, he painted the fence, he sanded whatever, right? And um, he's learning patterns, is he not? He's learning habits so that he can stand and fight well when the time comes. Mr. Miyagi's teaching him the power of habit. The, The beautiful power of habit is that when we as Christians build gospel-centered habits into our lives, when we learn to commune with God, when we learn to seek God, then when hard things come, when trial comes, that's what we turn to because that's our habit. That's what happens with Daniel. Daniel faces his greatest challenge towards the end of his life, and at this time, he's got a reservoir of faithful practice in pursuing God 
that he can fall back on, that he can draw from. So when trial comes in your life, and it will come, what faithful practice are you going to fall back on? That can make all the difference in how you respond. That can make you or break you. How can you prepare for the suffering and trial that this life is going to bring? You can prepare by practicing prayer now, just as Daniel did. It's building up a a spiritual reservoir, a a spiritual savings account that that you can draw from later on. So remember about a month ago we had snowpocalypse, snowmageddon, whatever you want to call it. We were prepared because of Marianne. For years we've been married and uh, Marianne's had this emergency preparedness kit. And this thing's heavy. It's like heavy, heavy. And uh, we've hauled it from one house to another, been with us all the time. And I got to confess, I've kind of made fun of her for this. I'm like, you're a prepper. You're a prepper. We've got an emergency preparedness kit. Can we just leave this thing behind? And she's like, no, we're taking it with us. Well, it turns out when we lost all power as an apocalypse came, guess what we used? Emergency preparedness kit. We had water. We had everything we need. Only to the credit of my wife, I would have been helpless. I would have been going to Patrick's house as fast as possible looking for help. But because we had prepared, we were ready when trials came. That's exactly what Daniel's teaching us here, to be faithful. Faithful to your place, faithful to your God, building up the reservoir that we're going to need when hard times come later. The last thing we see, though, is that God is faithful to Daniel. Let's keep going. As a result of these guys scheming against Daniel, even though Daniel's innocent, he's cast into a den of hungry lions, right? This is better seen as what's known as an ordeal. This is an ordeal. This isn't an execution. If this had been an execution... They would not have let Daniel out the next day. He would have been executed. This is an ordeal, which was very common in the ancient Near Eastern world. An ordeal is when someone was accused of a crime, but there's some uncertainty as to his or her guilt, and so they set an ordeal up to determine his innocence. And uh, the most famous ordeal was the water ordeal, where someone's accused of a crime, and they throw a person in the river. If he comes out of the river alive, he's innocent. But if he doesn't make it out of the river, he's guilty. Isn't that good justice? It's like Monty Python justice right there. Um, There's also where we get our famous phrase, the trial by fire. That's an ordeal language. That's what this is. This is the the den of lions ordeal. It's not looking good for 80-year-old Daniel. Uh, We went to the zoo a number of years back. Our kids are a little too old for the zoo. They, They even were then. And I have this memory of going to the lion's den. And you know, if you watch the lions, it's always, the male lions are always just chilling out, sleeping. The women, the ones that do all the work, all the hunting, they're the ones prowling back and forth. But in this instance, there's this little kid, he's probably four years old, and he is like on, he's got his nose on the glass. You guys picturing this with me? And something struck this male lion about that kid. And he got up and sprinted right up to the glass and roared. And it was like, Whoa. And the kid, like Daniel Jr., just stood there and took it like a man. I was like running. But um, I just was shocked by how massive and powerful and staggeringly scary these lions were. That's what Daniel gets tossed into, a den of them. And Darius is concerned. He, He wishes he could get Daniel out of it, but he can't. And so he says in verse 16, ironically, may your God deliver you. There's a lot of irony in this story. For example, Darius, think about this, Darius can't sleep all night. 
Verse 18, sleep fled from him. Darius, the most powerful person on the planet. The person who has any resource imaginable at his beck and call can't go to sleep because he's so worried. But on the other hand, Daniel, old man Daniel, old man Daniel, a prisoner, an exile, a foreigner, tossed into a den of lions. Now, the text doesn't say this, but don't you have the picture in your mind? He's just kind of chilling with the lions. I mean, just, the lion's mane is his pillow, enjoying a good eight hours of REM sleep. He's set. He's ready to go. Darius can't sleep. Daniel's rested, even though Darius is in the palace and Daniel's in the prison filled with lions. Darius can't sleep because he's worried about himself. Daniel can't sleep because he's trusting God and knows God will take care of him. So Darius finds him just fine in the morning. Verse 23 says, no kind of harm was found on him. Why wasn't Daniel harmed? Daniel says, my God sent his angel. He shut the lion's mouth. They've not harmed me because I was found blameless in this matter. And also before you, O king, I've done no harm. This is one of the great stories in the Bible, rightly so. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. Interestingly, some critical commentators say, well, the reason Daniel wasn't killed is because the lions weren't hungry. Darius had fed them right before Daniel got thrown in, and that's what happened. This wasn't a miracle. Uh, I don't think so. They eat immediately all the bad guys, along with their wives and children. Not a very pleasant idea, but that's what happens right afterwards. It's a miracle that God rescues Daniel. What are we to make of this? Let me wrap it up with just two quick comments. First, it's no coincidence. It is no coincidence that in the early church, first two or three centuries of church art, especially when the Christian church was under persecution by the Roman Empire, we know from archaeological digs that the reliefs on the walls of old churches would have pictures often of Daniel coming out of the lion's den, right next to another picture of another famous historical event. Anybody want to take a guess? Jesus coming out of the tomb. You think about the similarities between them. Jesus, just like Daniel, was faithful in a hostile world. But he wasn't just faithful in like this instance. He was faithful in every instance all the time. Jesus, just like Daniel, was framed on a false charge by jealous authorities. Jesus, just like Daniel, was arrested while he was praying in a private location. In Jesus' case, it was the Garden of Gethsemane. Pilate, just like Darius, worked for Daniel's release and Jesus' release, but failed. But in the end, Daniel and Jesus are both turned over to be killed, right? But there's a difference. Daniel emerges from the tomb of lions without a scratch, but Jesus dies. The difference between them there underlies not the inferiority of Jesus, but the superiority of Jesus. Jesus dies, but three days later, the stone was moved, and he emerged from the grave in resurrection power, showing us that death has no sting over Jesus. Death cannot hold Jesus, and death cannot hold you if you're connected to Jesus in faith. You see, Daniel's life and Daniel's work point us to the greater life and the greater work of Jesus, and it's greater because Daniel is a great example for Christians to follow, and you should follow his example. You should strive by every means of God's appointment to be like Daniel, absolutely. But Jesus is more than just an example for us. Jesus is a redeemer, a redeemer of us. Jesus went to death 
into the lion's den, proverbially speaking. And, and then he came back to life so that we can have life. Jesus underwent the judgment ordeal in the place of people who actually did deserve judgment, you and me. Jesus did this for us because Jesus was faithful to God, but at the same time, he was faithful to us in his love. Daniel asks, can you see how much Jesus loves you? Can you see how much Jesus loves you? He went into the lion's den for you, and he came out of the grave again. And that leads me to the last thing. Daniel in the lion's den, seen through the lens of the gospel of Jesus, gives us a certain and a sure confidence that just like the angel was with Daniel in the den of lions, Jesus will, in fact, be with you when you face trials. Jesus will be with you when you face ordeals. We all know this world is still full of lions. Peter says the devil roams around like a lion, waiting to devour. And maybe you feel afraid. Maybe you've been victimized, even when you're innocent. Maybe you're suffering and struggling. Maybe you're dealing with consequences of not being faithful. Maybe you're under the weight of your own failures and your own sins. Because Jesus has gone into the grave for us and come back to life for us, we know that he's not ever going to leave us now. So you this morning can rest in Jesus' faithfulness to us and then pursue faithfulness to him in return, not to earn his love, but as a response for his unearnable love given to you already. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness to us in the gospel. Thank you that um, you went into the tomb uh, and faced death and conquered death, not just for yourself, but also for us as our Redeemer, as the one who made sacrifice to cover our sins. Thank you for the power of your resurrection, which was seen uh, in an incipient way in Daniel's life. We see it fully in your life, Jesus, and so we praise you for that. Thank you for your faithful love to us. We ask that you would enable us by your grace to be faithful to you, not to earn your love, but because we already have it free of charge and because we want to obey you because you've been so kind to us. So Jesus, will you lead us in that, we ask. Give us your spirit in full measure to follow you in faithfulness. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.